Hello and welcome to Conversations on Social Choreography, presented by the Laboratory for Social Choreography at the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. I'm Luke Clancy, writer and producer, and in this series of conversations, I'm going to be stepping through the story of social choreography, building an oral history with the people who created it. This is the second episode of the podcast, featuring dramaturg and performance theorist Steve Volk. In the first episode, we talked about social choreography and its affordances today, but this time we follow Steve Volk's own biography, talking about some of his earliest experiences of play and performance and the social world in which these unfolded. So tell us a, a little bit about your early days and, and your family. Tell us about your, your family background. Well, I uh, grew up in... Um a particular and, and I mean it was a quite uh, kind of exciting situation. Um, my father's parents were immigrants from Holland and they came to the United States and uh, lived in New Jersey, in northern New Jersey, which also gave them you know access to New York City so they would go and visit and do things and see shows and museums and so you know there was a really nice opportunity for my dad to have a connection to a big city while living in a smaller town in New Jersey and and growing up there um, so that was his family life and um, he had a very he was very active and very at home in the best sense of the word in his church it was his life world uh, and it was a actually a very famous and really very well-run and really highly respected Presbyterian church that he was part of. So you could just imagine it was a, you know, an amazingly charged and, and, and organized and, and enlightened kind of place that he felt he was really close to. And so um, he wanted to go to seminary uh, when he graduated from high school. It was pretty clear he wanted to do that. His brother was, became an architect kind of an interesting, you know, unconventional architect. And um, he, in the, in the course of his studies, he spent um, a year abroad in Edinburgh in Scotland, the home of uh, Protestantism, uh, Presbyterianism. Actually, that, my father was a Presbyterian. This was, of course, you know, his parents were very, and my grandparents were very supportive of that. And while he was uh, traveling in Europe during vacation months um, as almost everybody did at that point, um, Eurail Pass or whatever, uh, he met my German grandfather uh, on the beach in Denmark. And my grandfather was a principal, high school principal, and loved speaking English and noticed or spoke to my father and soon realized he's an American. And most people, I think, know this, but, you know, there's a very strange relationship um, in that Germany really opened itself up and kind of just swallowed American culture uh, hook, line, and sinker after the war. I mean, it was kind of in a way to just flee the horrors of the war and Nazism and all of the kind of, you know, the, the uh, stigma that came with that. And they just embraced American culture. So there was this, you know, very, very friendly encounter. And then my grandfather said, oh, you should meet my daughters and my wife. And my dad met my mother and her sister and his and her and uh, my grandmother, and my mother and dad, you know, were attracted to each other and started to go out to f whatever on a date at night and see each other, 
And then the parents, my grandparents, invited him to stop off and visit them while he was continuing traveling in Celle in Germany. And um, after that, my father went home, and my parents wound up writing to each other for three years, uh, and then decided in letters to get married. And then my father came over, and uh, they had a little trip. I think they took a little trip together just to kind of like make sure they wanted to be married and just sort of connect. And then they had this rather beautiful big wedding in Sella in a castle and, you know, with a carriage and a, and a German celebration. Uh, and I believe some relatives of my dad's, Americans, came there. There were a few, just a handful that were over there. And also Dutch relatives, of course, of my dad. And then my mother and my father came over to the United States by boat and uh, brought a Volkswagen Beetle uh, with them and uh, were picked up by the American pa parents, my dad's sister and the kids and my cousins picked them up at the harbor and they lived close to New York City in New Jersey and um, my father was a minister in a church then, he, had, he was a assistant pastor and so my mother came into this, you know, highly structured, you know, post-World War II booming America in a kind of immigrant family. So there was a real sense of what it means to be European and to come over here. She was close to New York City and she was really interested in culture and classical music and movies and everything going on. So it was a stimulating but kind of relaxed and very... Um, What's the word, you know, if you're the, the minister's wife? I mean, quite a cozy, nice situation to arrive into. And I was born a year after they were married. And so I, I grew up, you know, with my mom around speaking German to me. And I think that those years were formative. Um, I mean, they always are. But, you know, I, I just feel like there that was a very wonderful, you know, fam lots of family, lots of things happening, the Jersey Shore in the summer and the beaches and trips to New York City and, you know, and a, and a church community can be, you know, quite interesting. And my, my mom, there were actually really, the minister and his wife became close friends and they were, you know, uh, cultured people and my mom got along with the minister's wife. And so I think it was a very stimulating environment and then we moved to uh, upstate New York which is quite a bit further away and my mom started to go to college she went to Wells College which is a quite well-known and wonderful women's college and after that did her PhD at Cornell and then wound up teaching at Cornell where I then also went to college and so I kind of grew up in this theological uh, you know father's a minister mom's graduate student doing her PhD in uh, German studies, and actually in theater, and the, she, she wrote about the, um, the sculptor Ernst Barlach, who was both doing sculpture and also set design and theater design. And, and we grew up in an idyllic sort of town with you know families full of chock full of kids all along the block, and I would go out in the morning and come back for dinner um, all day long, and except when I was going to school and school was a five-minute walk. And um, so it really was quite an amazing place to grow up with a lot of freedom uh, and a lot of rich kind of inputs and diversity and travels. And, and you know, my mom would invite, invite students to the house. So, and then we had church people at the house and we had music because my dad was in the church. And so you can just imagine, I mean, a rather rich, 
and structured and kind of integrated um, family life in a society that was booming. It was America, it was the American success story of the 60s, you know, landing on the moon and you name it. And then at the same time, you know, my my dad marching with Martin Luther King and my mom marching uh, in the anti-war protests in Washington. And knowing my mom is down there watching the news and knowing my mom is marching, you know, against the war. So it was just, it was a pretty interesting, you know, and stimulating time. And it provided a kind of, I was gonna say a final thing, a safe but very structured, very rich environment to just kind of be in and to explore. Tell us a little bit about the exploring, because the idea of play is very central to social choreography and maybe to a lot of the, the work that you've done. T- tell us about your early experiences of, of play and your sense of, 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 what, of, of how play existed within a, that, that structured society. Uh, I imagine gave you, uh, you, you've talked about uh, there, there was a sort of sense of freedom uh, because of the um, the kind of cohesion of the society around you? Well, I think there were two, two dimensions of that. There was a play that was very rigorous in a sense of like hours long and constant, which was sort of me building things and making things and playing with Legos and playing with figurines and building kind of, you know, scenarios. I would love to play with scenarios. I also played with, I just found this out, Quentin Tarantino played with G.I. Joe. I played with G.I. Joe. So I played with dolls and, you know, kind of setting up situations and scenes and acting things out. There was that. And then there was this overloaded neighborhood with kids. And so I, you know, obviously I spent most of my time out with these kids. But, um, but there was this neighborhood. And another thing I like to talk about is that I used to travel almost always through the backyards. So the yards, the backyards were not fenced off in a way that you couldn't go through them. And really there wasn't much of a problem uh, on the part of the neighbors if you walked through their backyard. And the backyard is like a the jungle. It's like it's all green. It's all enclosed, the houses. It's like a park uh, and it's different trees. But it's also each yard is its own kind of you know, territory. Each yard has the markings and the sort of the culture of the people that have that house. Um, So it's like walking through, having the freedom to kind of traverse and to, what's the word, stroll through different life worlds and being allowed to do it. That's the other thing. That's the whole thing is to be enabled, empowered, uh, to be free to just wander uh, and do things like go to someone's water hose, turn it on, drink water, turn the hose off, and then keep walking. Um, Or to knock on doors and say hi and kind of hope that you get Kool-Aid or cookies or something, and most often you did. Um, So there was this, you know, very trusting, rich, you know, also diverse, like literally the neighborhood had, you know, just very different people, old ladies, Italian couples, families with 14 kids. So these houses are just like radically different. And so you could, you know, get a drink at one house and knock on the door of the next and you're just in a whole different, different world. And I just, that was for me second nature, but also enchanting and really just, you know, really interesting. 
Um, and again, we played all the time. Any time you wanted to do sport, I did lots of sports and baseball and football and running around and adventure and play, but also then also at times getting on my bike and riding further than you knew you were supposed to go or going places where you're like, well, I'm not supposed to be going this far probably. Uh, you know, and just, yeah, just having this, and also total sense of safety, right? I mean, I don't think in my entire period of that part of my life till I was like 11 or 12, ever any threat of any kind whatsoever. Uh, so I, I guess at that period, uh, television was a particular, was a very special medium. I mean, and, and it's something that sort of has fed a lot of your thinking. As well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, we didn't get a TV till quite, I mean, well, till I was about four, so four or five. And we were given a television by uh, someone from the church. So my parents didn't even want to buy one, but someone gave one to us. And that was exciting. I mean, that it, it was a little bit like having a theater in your house that you could pull the curtains and then boom, there it was, something was on. And um, yeah, and, and I remember being very drawn to and interested in what was going on. And, you know, there were only three channels and, uh, you know, you kind of just looked for something and there were these certain things you watched that every single person watched. And, um, and what soon developed, though, as well as my dad, uh, in the course of the time we were there, decided to no longer be, be a minister in a church, but to become a prison chaplain. So he went back to school, and he um, then ultimately took a job. He had to do an internship, and for two years, he was away for half a week. So my mom and I spent a lot of time together, and we would have rituals like watching TV together, watching a show at 4 o'clock every day. So instead of playing with my friends, I, at 4 o'clock, I know, boom, time to go home and watch TV with my mom. So she would get like these special potato chips and we had this ritual of sitting together and watching TV shows. And again, that was a wonderful thing. Like, I don't know, you know, no, I don't know what kids are like today, but I mean, it just now in retrospect, it's like, oh, you mean you just suddenly stopped playing baseball and went and just played, just watched, movie, watched TV with your mom? Yeah, that's what I did. I liked it. It was, it was nice, you know? Tell us, tell us something you watched. Uh, well... There are maybe two or three things. Um, I love the show called The Wild Wild West, which was basically James Bond in the West. And liter literally James Bond was, you know, came out in 1961, I think, James Bond, Dr. No. And this was like 1966, 67. So you'd had Goldfinger and Thunderball and From Russia with Love. And eventually that makes it to TV where there are all these spy shows and they made this one show which was about kind of spies with gadgets and stuff uh, in the West. And that is the show I loved. And it was, kind of, you know, it was, uh, in, the, in retrospect, it became a kind of cult show. I mean, it's, it's well known. They actually did a remake, Hollywood remake, whatever. The other thing I loved was uh, I loved uh, um, music and I like watched like the, the Partridge Family and liked the music and even got like the got the the the, the records and liked the mute like pop music and the third thing which was probably the most important thing was i really loved monster movies and we had this show called monster movie matinee every saturday at one o'clock and that was also like religion that was like we, everything stopped 
<laughs> we all, I mean, sometimes my friend and I would watch it together, but strangely enough, watched it a lot alone. And it was a local, you know, had an introduction, it had a host, and then they would show these movies. And the most exciting thing in the world was to have the host, you know, introduce this week's movie. And then at the very end, you suddenly find out, oh my God, it's the Wolfman. You know, I've never, I've heard all about it, but I've never seen it. And today we're, you know, or Frankenstein or some of the, I mean, of course it was, you know, King Kong or whatever. The, the, the movies that were the famous ones were amazing if they ever showed up, you know. And so there was this really big thing about what is going to be on the movie today. You described the television as like a theater coming into the house. Had you seen live performance or what kind of live performance were you encountering at that time? Uh, I'm pretty sure I only encountered a church, which, you know, which is pretty live performance. That's my dad speaking. That's choirs and, or, and organs and stuff going on. Uh, I was put into, you could say that I was put into youth theater, like at some point, um, when I was like, also like eight years old, I was in a play, which I kind of liked, but I didn't, I mean, I liked it, but I wasn't, didn't drive, you know, it didn't go crazy, but I, I liked it. I was in there, I had a decent sized part in sort of the city youth theater. And then, oh gosh, I mean, I know we went to concerts and we might have even gone to some kind of an opera, you know, like staged by the, the college opera group or something. So I did see things, and certainly concerts and church, for sure. Yeah, I, I'm wondering about that. Um, you know, because this relationship between the performer and the audience is so um, in question in social choreography, I'm I'm wondering, you know, d d had you this uh, this sense of yourself as audience, or was there was in the audience the wrong place for you? Was that already was that already not where you should be, or or you know, I, I'm just interested in that uh, that axis. Yes, there. well, I mean, this is this is really actually. Yeah, quite strange and, and, and telling. Um, when I went to these um, uh, performances, especially later on when I was maybe eight years old or nine years old or 10 years old, I had a very strange ritual or kind of thing I would do, which is that um, in, the, in, the, in, the, um, in the, what are they called, the intermissions, and usually there was one, sometimes two, I would go spying uh, in the sense of I would try to get past any security or any coat racks or pe people, you know, taking tickets or, or whatever, and try to get into the back part of the building uh, where the offices were, where the stage was. And I would spend the entire intermission just exploring all over the place. And, um, the, you know, it felt dangerous, it felt, like, but it felt like I, this is something I really felt compelled to do, was to kind of, in a certain way, look behind the curtain, or look, look you know, I, I sometimes would look behind the curtain, like I would sort of see the performers running around or something, but the main thing was to infiltrate the building. And I would also do stuff like go up into some office and if the refrigerator had orange juice, I would just have a glass of orange juice. I mean, I was really like a thief. I was really <laughs> just up there. If there was a, you know, if there was a bagel, I would cut it in half and eat half a bagel. And it was just this really driven sense of trying to get 
into these places and be like a spy. And it had something to do with the wild, wild west, and it had something to do with the sort of like G.I. Joe and whatever, but I just, and so when I came back to sit down in the second half, when I looked at the stage, it was completely different. It was a whole different consciousness if you've been all around everywhere like a wild person and then you sit back down and then you watch the performance again. So, um, yeah, and I would, I mean, I, I, like I said, I would do anything. I, if I couldn't get in a door, I went outside. I sometimes climbed through open windows. I went up fire escapes and tried to get in. And this is what I did is try to break into the back part of the building uh, in every concert, in every concert I was in, really. Um, and even, I think, churches as well. Like, I mean, just, I just loved to explore buildings and just go where you're behind the scenes, kind of. Um, I really think that is, uh, that is a, yeah, I was gonna say, that's a, that is a, a, a dimension of my mind and that is still like prevalent, this notion of kind of wanting to see both the behind and the front at the same time. What I'm thinking about a lot about now is, uh, I literally coined the phrase today, is the ecology of transmission. And what I mean by that is for ideas to take hold, for something to be not only kind of apprehended, but actually to have some kind of a stickiness to it, that when you communicate an idea, you can attach other ideas to it and you can build something. And I mean, I'm talking about social choreography, I'm talking about these ideas that you, know, you can say to someone, this is what it is, but does it really have the, is the environment there for a transmission that will allow for it to actually be sustained and then be sustained and sticky in a sense of that you can actually build with another person, you can communicate and you can create a space. And, and, and what, what I talked about just now is the, this feeling of there being a space, a real living structure uh, that was that a framework for experiences. And, and, I, and I literally heard a long discussion today about Ukraine and Russia and about democracy and, and the difference of how, you know, they were talking about the difference between Russia and Ukraine and that is that Russia is a, is a corrupt autocracy and Ukraine is a corrupt democracy. But there's a big difference. And, and, and so, so I'm just saying that the, 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 the space you're in, what, you know, what is being held and the environment that you feel is available to you and you can interact with and you're safe and you can be stimulated and you have the freedom to even transgress, that that forms your brain and it, for, it informs your thinking in a kind of tactile way, in a kind of embodied way. Um, so it, it creates a thinking that is not only imagining something, but the imagination immediately involves the notion of actually doing it. So like, for example, if I'm watching this play and I have to watch it and hear, hear what it is, is you know, I can go and just dig in behind and look at everything and go where I'm not supposed to go and come back and look at it again, and I can kind of like fortify my own reality and I can interact and play with something, uh, I have the freedom to do that. And, and so I'm just saying that it's so important that other people or that the space that you're talking about something in 
has those affordance, affordances because otherwise people won't know, like won't really be able to imagine what it means to think something and then to actually do it. Uh, <clears throat> so, and, and social choreography, of course, relies on an imagination that can imagine, you know, breaking rules and, and mixing things up and combining things that are different or taking a position outside of everything in society and wanting to play with it. You have to have that space. You have to have the given that, that perspective and not only perspective, but an activated agency in a perspective like that. And that's kind of what I felt like I grew up with. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what strikes me there is what, what you're doing is kind of deproductifying the experience. You know, you are being offered the product, which is what you see from the front. And you're going, that, that's, that's relatively unsatisfactory. You know, what is the experience rather than what is the product? Yeah, and, and, and you, know, there, you know, there's this term that I came across recently called hidden curriculum, which is what they talk about, that children with Asperger's just don't understand the social codes that, that are going on that are informing people's behavior. They always think that everybody has a rule book that they haven't been given. And I have a feeling that like going to the theater and then looking behind is sort of like deconstructing earlier. What, are, what is the hidden curriculum? What's really behind this? Like what's the reality behind this? Uh, and and then you kind of see okay well offices and 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 bookcases and uh, bathrooms and uh, changing rooms and uh, hallways and you know doorways and locked doors and open doors and you know it just it it becomes much more and it and and it's yeah and it's it's you know it's basically like saying what is the difference between the artwork. And the artwork plus the behind plus the, the you know the the environment, uh, and then suddenly you have something else. You know, by the way, one last story. Um, you know, I used to be in theater as an assistant director in my early days, and I and I'd be watching a scene with a director sitting next to me, wanting me to you know to have an opinion after the scene is over, and I'd be watching, and I'd be realizing that I could not separate watching the prompter eat her sandwich and the th scene I was watching. <laughs> so I would watch, you know, Strindberg, some incredible scene in Strindberg, and I'd be watching it, but the sandwich and the chewing would be happening at the same time as the scene. And then I remember this, the scene stopping for some reason and the director turning to me and going, what do you think? And I had to kind of disengage my mind and think, oh my God, how do I communicate you know, the chewing of the, he doesn't want to know about the chewing of the sandwich and the scene. He wants to know about the scene. There's nothing outside the, like, it's all the text. There isn't an outside of it. And that's what I meant by Duchamp. It's like, it's like social choreography is putting the, you know, putting the observer into the equation and your own, you know, it's a 360 degree immersive consciousness. And culture is that. You've been listening to Conversations on Social Choreography from the Laboratory for Social Choreography at the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University with Steve Volk in conversation with me, Luke Clancy. And in the next episode, we'll be talking about some of Steve Volk's earliest experiences in the professional theatre.